Welcome back to Working in the Weeds. I'm Christine Krebs, the Education and Training Specialist out here at the UF-IFIS Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. And per usual, Dr. Jason Farrell is across the table from me. Can't wait to get started, Christine. Yeah, me too. And today's episode's guest is Jason Dodson, the FWC or Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission section lead for the Fish and Wildlife Research Institute. Hey, Jason, how are you today? I'm good. Happy to be here. Well, Jason, we really appreciate you joining us today. So I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a couple of reasons, one of which is that we're both friends and colleagues. We have a lot of shared interest, and I've learned a lot talking to you over the last few years about plants, fisheries, the state of Florida lakes. But the primary reason I wanted to have you in today is because we're talking about hydrilla, and we really kind of get into the social aspects of it and what is going on out there in Florida and across the Southeast with this plant. And you have a really unique relationship with this plant, both as a very passionate angler and as a scientist. So you're section leader of the FWC uh, Fish Wildlife Research Institute. So as both a biologist and an angler, you've interacted with this thing at the same time, but with two different perspectives. That's right. But before we get into this, I want to sort of introduce you to the listeners a little bit. So I just mentioned you're a very passionate angler. So can you think back a couple of decades and remember anything? Do you remember the first time that you really got bit by the fishing bug when you knew this is going to be a long-term passion for me? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> I was really, really young. My dad, big angler. My grandfather, big angler. It's a family tradition. My grandfather is also a biologist. Uh, so I was learning while I was fishing about nature, the outdoors, conservation. I grew up on a lake in Virginia. I had my own boat by the time I was 12 years old. And, and what did this boat look like? So this was a 14-foot John boat with a 25 horse. I was yeah. thinking 12. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, he's going to say 12 foot. <laughs> yep. And, you know, it was different back then. I could, I could be set loose on a 5,000-acre lake as a kid by myself, 12 years old. I'd spend hours out there fishing and uh, I just fell in love with it. Um, grew up fishing on the Potomac River. I'm from Virginia. Got my bachelor's degree in fishery science from Virginia Tech. And then I came down to Florida and got my master's degree in fishery science from University of Florida. And really the sole reason that I came to Florida is because it's the bass fishing capital of the world. And I grew up in Virginia every Saturday morning watching Roland Martin on TV, watching Bill Dance, fishing these Florida lakes. Florida, if, if you were a, a bass fisherman, it was the place to be, and, and that's why I came here. So I pursued a career in fisheries as a fishery scientist because of my love for fishing and passion for fishing and, and the outdoors, and Florida is the place to be if that's what you're into. So you sort of came up in the golden age of fishing, right? Because that's when all of these TV shows were on every Saturday morning. So I'm assuming you were there watching. And who was your favorite fishing celebrity back then? Bill Dance. It's <laughs> everybody's, right? Bill Dance is the guy. You know, I can remember freshman year at Virginia Tech in an English class writing a uh, a paper about somebody that you look up to as an idol. And I wrote about Bill Dance because I really did idolize him. He fished for a living on TV and he got to go into the best places to fish in the world that nobody else got into. What's better than that? And I even remember like getting fishing magazines and I would dog ear those things and go through them and look at all these fishing lures that where I was from, there wasn't a lot of, you know, bait and tackle shops. So all of these things I knew I would never find out in the wild, but Bill Dance's stuff was so common, man, I always had to buy them and I never caught anything off this stuff because I had no idea how to fish but I knew if I bought a Bill Dance lure by golly it was the, the odds were in my favor that day 
day. They never were. <laughs> and so that past with fishing, with your like present role within FWC, what does that look like with your role as a section lead with FWRI and taking your passion? Well, I, th- I think that um, you don't have to be an angler to be a good scientist or fisheries manager, but it does give you a different perspective mm-hmm. because you can understand where, where anglers are coming from, but you also understand the science, population dynamics, how different habitat affects different fisheries. So you get you have a little bit more complete picture where you can look at things from, from both angles. You know, so a little bit about the Fish and Wildlife Research Institute. We're very unique in Florida um, where we have an independent research division within the FWC that is solely focused on doing research. And we do research that informs our management partners. And so for us, that's primarily the Division of Freshwater Fisheries Management and the Habitat and Species Conservation Division, which is where the Invasive Plant Management section is, and also the Aquatic Habitat Restoration and Enhancement section. So we deal with them very closely. We do a, we do a lot of different research spanning from you know non-game fish, sport fish, we do mercury sampling in in fish to for the Department of Health for fish consumption guidelines. We have an invertebrate program where we do muscle monitoring. Wow. So a really really diverse group. So it's all the way from ecosystem health to fish populations and everything in between. Exactly. And so relevant to the, to today's conversation, you know, we one of our biggest programs is our habitat mapping program. Our biggest program, hands down, in in our section is our long-term monitoring program where we look at long-term trends in fish communities and specifically sport fish populations. And then a component of that is habitat mapping. And so we map 50 to 60 lakes annually. And that information is really, really important for aquatic plant management in Florida. And aquatic plant management is a very critical tool for fisheries management. Uh, Habitat, everybody understands how important habitat is for for healthy fisheries and and wildlife populations. Mm -hmm. So that's one of our critical roles. And we address uh, through research, information gaps that our management partners have, whether that's for restor- habitat restoration enhancement or aquatic plant management or maybe harvest regulations or stock enhancement. You know, those are some of the primary tools that our management partners have. So we have research aimed at answering questions to help our management partners make the best decisions possible. And Hydrilla is unique. It is the singular most divisive and controversial freshwater management issue that we have in the state of Florida. It's highly polarized. There's very few people that are in the middle on how they feel about hydrilla. You know, there, there's a lot of bass anglers that really, really love hydrilla on one side. Maybe crappie anglers that find it difficult to fish in hydrilla don't like it as much. Or if you're a, a recreational boater, have a jet ski, pontoon boat, you get hung up in it. Mm-hmm. You're a shoreline homeowner. What we often forget as anglers, which which I am, and I'm out on the water, I'm often looking at this lake just from a standpoint of how's the fishing in this lake? How's the bass fishing? Does this lake have big bass in it? You know, mm-hmm. I'm only thinking about that. I'm not thinking always when I first get to a lake about how the person on the jet ski or the pontoon or the lakefront homeowner or the panfish angler mm-hmm. might be viewing that resource. And so it's really important to think about all the different people that have a stake in that lake. And then you think about invasive plant management is charged with 
managing the hydrilla in this system. And what a difficult job that is, uh, because really, no matter how they manage that lake, somebody's going to be a winner and somebody's going to be a loser. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have some happy people and some unhappy people. And there's seldom a time when a management strategy can be employed with hydrilla that everybody's pretty happy with. Well, you've got user groups that want everything from 100% hydrilla to 0% hydrilla and everything in between. So if you move that hydrilla population 1%, someone is now disenfranchised or feels disenfranchised, right? Yeah. So you've kind of come at this. You were a, a bass fisherman first, and then you became a biologist out of that passion. So would you talk a little bit about you know, how you have approached this plant in the past, how you had to learn about it, and, and where you are now as a biologist and where you were as a fisherman? Or has that has your thoughts and feelings about this plant changed any? Yeah, I, I would say that it has. When You know, growing up in Virginia, we had hydrilla in the Potomac River, mm -hmm. which, is, which is one of the primary places that I grew up fishing. And so I had very positive interactions with hydrilla. It was a great thriving fishery in the 1990s. Uh, 50 to 75 bass days were not uncommon. Uh, you would get out and you know, some of the community holes, one of them was named Arkendale Flats. Maybe some listeners have, have heard of this, you know, big tournaments, BASS series tournaments out of the out of the Potomac. The Potomac wasn't always a thriving bass fishery. And Hydrilla was credited with helping that fishery recover some. And so I had mm -hmm. really positive uh, experiences associated with Hydrilla as a kid growing up. And to be honest with you, I didn't even know it was an invasive plant or a non-native mm -hmm. plant. You know, it was just a, a plant that had bass in it and they were fairly easy to target. <laughs> so all good. Um, did you even call it hydrilla or did you call it grass or what did you was, call it? Yeah, we called it grass. Didn't even know it was hydrilla. You know, we just we just called it grass. Yeah. It was good for fishing, you know. And um, so when I came to Florida, things were much different because Florida bass fishing is synonymous with hydrilla. I mean, we've had we've had hydrilla here for, what, 60, 70 years? Mm -hmm. uh, you yeah, know? since the mid-50s. Yeah. I mean, most of the famed, most famed lakes in Florida – are associated with hydrilla, at least at times, have had large amounts of hydrilla. And, you know, some of them are credited to hydrilla. So when I was in grad school here, you know, I took Dr. Haller's uh, invasive plant management class. Um, I, my my uh, primary advisor was Dr. Mike Allen, um, taking fisheries management courses. We talked a lot about habitat in general and aquatic plant management and specifically hydrilla in grad school and really start learning about the complexities of this plant, um, how difficult it is to manage, how unpredictable it is, um, all the pros and cons associated with the different techniques available and how limited some of the techniques that we have to deal with it and how how difficult it is to thread that needle for that sweet spot. You know, as fisheries managers and the literature suggests that 20 to 40% coverage, you know, 20, if 20 to 40% of the lake had submerged plants, whether that's hydrilla and or native plants, mm -hmm. that, that's kind of the, um, the peak spot that we would like to be for recruitment and angler catch rates. Um, Etc. But we don't have a magic wand to just make a lake like that. And yeah. what, hydrilla can grow, what, an inch a day? Every tip can grow an inch a day. So you can end up with hundreds of inches 
per day after you add everything up. Yeah. yeah. So for our listeners, last episode, Dr. Farrell highlighted the growth rate. And then the previous episode on lakes and landscapes from the first season talks just that, like every lake has its own personality and reacts to different weather conditions. And so these uncertainties with it all can kind of make big change happen quick. Mm-hmm. Or not at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So there are times the hydrilla doesn't seem to really move. And then there are times that you're watching it grow, literally watching it change week by week. And you say, well, it has to be growing at night. There is just no way it can grow that much in one day. Right. So the, the plant is very unpredictable, as you just mentioned. Yeah. And Florida's Florida's like the perfect home for hydrilla, right? Because we have these shallow basin lakes, this subtropical climate. Nutrient-rich. Nutrient-rich, long-growing season. You know, Texas reservoirs or Alabama reservoirs or up in Virginia in the Potomac River where I'm talking about, you have, you have depth restrictions. You have climate restrictions with shorter growing seasons. There's advantages in other parts of the – United States, at least Southeast United States, that have hydrilla that Florida doesn't have. So it's it's a it's even more difficult in Florida than yeah, these other states. I would even venture to say a lot of states and management agencies outside of Florida look at Florida's aquatic plant management and the trends we've seen because it's just such a poster child for invasive plant management. So with your past personal experiences and then as you've moved through life and just school in general and then now you have the opportunity to be a biologist for the state of Florida and really kind of get yourself in the weeds, working in the weeds, if we could say that, where does the controversy really lie? Like where do you see it happening when you when the agency is working with stakeholders and science to kind of create management plans? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there to, to unpack. Hydrilla can be beneficial. It can also be detrimental. It depends on how much we have and what glasses you're looking through. You know, the different stakeholders are looking at the the lake in different ways. They want different outcomes. The plant is super unpredictable. So it's very complicated decisions. And the experiences for anglers, you know, that's my background in fisheries, it can be so positive. For example, on on Lake Apopka, where we had an algal-dominated system for over 50 years with very little plants of any kind in the lake, over the last three years, we've seen a lot of hydrilla up to 10,000-plus acres the last couple of years. Our fishing effort during our peak fishing season, which was in the winter-spring, has increased from five to 7,000 hours to 27,000 hours uh, just in a in a very short time period. So the anglers are flocking to this hydrilla. The, the anglers are flocking to the hydrilla. We had an elite series event on Lake Apopka last year and nearly a third of the field locked into Apopka on day one, uh, which is just unheard of for anybody who's known much about Apopka over the years. Mm-hmm. Apopka is the furthest lake in the chain to get to. Mm-hmm. So you're so you're burning a lot of time to get up there. You're burning a lot of time and you gotta you gotta lock in. So it's a big investment to to go to Apopka. So the fishing has to be you have to be that much more confident in your fishing on Apopka versus the other lakes in the Harris chain. And the hydrilla brings that confidence to the angler. The hydrilla brings that confidence to the angler. So even if you had the same number of fish in two lakes, one with no hydrilla and one that had 30% coverage, you're going to be a lot more confident, even if there's the same number of fish, because you have an area to target. You, you know, 
they like to hang on the the hydrilla edges and it it brings it's like a fisher tractor it brings the angler and the fish together well meanwhile that angler has had a lot of experience in this state because there's so much hydrilla they are also as you say the fish are drawn but the angler is drawn because they feel that they have had more success with hydrilla than any other plants whether that be real or not mm -hmm. so the angler is also drawn to that patch of hydrilla yep that's right so this is sort of where the angler is seeing this and you're talking about the change on lake apopka but has there been changes in the, in your agency about how they view this plant historically? Yes, absolutely. I think I mentioned before that you know we've had hydrilla in Florida for sixty plus years. It's it's highly invasive. We've we've seen hydrilla have really detrimental impacts to our systems across the state. And, you know, anytime you get an, a new invasion and it, it's causing negative impacts to native species, the, the, the first management approach is eradication if possible. Try and get rid of it. It's clear that we're far beyond the window of eradication for, for hydrilla. For many years, our aquatic plant management group was, was within DEP, and the management approach there was lowest feasible level. And so for some of our listeners, DEP is the Department of Environmental Protection. Yeah. So in 2008, the Aquatic Plant Management Group came from Department of Environmental Protection to the FWC, Florida Fish and Wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was in large part because of disputes between the agencies about how to best manage the plant. And, um, you know, our, our executive director said at a recent commission meeting, IPM is housed where it, it should be within the FWC because we recognize the benefits that fish and wildlife can receive from managed hydrilla. And that's, a, that's an important distinction there. A lot of anglers in the state of Florida have never fished a water body that's unmanaged for invasive plants, whether that be floating plants or whether that be hydrilla. So a lot of the positive outcomes that we have as anglers on Florida lakes fishing hydrilla, we may not even connect that the positive experiences we're having is because it's being effectively managed by FWC. I, I try to get this point across every time I talk to stakeholders and I say, you don't want more hydrilla, you want more managed hydrilla. That's actually what is going to get you where you want to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And m many m other stakeholders too, right? So then along with, for example, I like to kayak. Sometimes I'll fish off the kayak, but if I have to fight hydrilla half the time, it's not as fun. Or the mm -hmm. homeowners that want their kids to be able to jump off the dock and not get tangled up right away. So, well, But let's talk about this. So there, if there's been a shift at FWC about how you view this invasive plant, I mean, at some point, are you making a deal with the devil when you are relying on one of the most aggressive invasive plants known to man that can grow hundreds of inches per day? We have seen this leapfrog hydrilla in these lakes. You just mentioned Apopka. You just, every time you turn your back, there's more of it. So are we making a deal with the devil to use an, a plant that aggressive as habitat? Yeah, that's one way to put it, but it's uh, it's a deal we didn't have a choice in. Mm -hmm. So we have no choice in the matter. It's now naturalized in our landscape, whether we like it or not. If I had my way and could snap my fingers and get rid of hydrilla statewide, I would do it. I like hydrilla as an angler. I recognize 
through the research that we've done and through the science that hydrilla can absolutely have benefits to bass fisheries with caveats, you know, at moderate levels, at the right amounts that are hard to obtain. But, 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 but. Yes. So all that to say is we have no choice in the matter. It's now part of our landscape. So we have to be thinking about how we can best manage it for the best outcomes for so many different users for so many different fish, so, so many different wildlife populations. I mean, we haven't talked about this, but hydrilla is not universally beneficial to fish. You know, we often talk about largemouth bass and the benefits there because largemouth bass are our most popular sport fish. But, you know, panfish and crappie, they don't do very good in hydrilla. We often see significant reductions in fishing effort and catch for crappie and panfish when hydrilla comes into a system. So again, super complicated. You know, that's the theme here is how complex and complicated this hydrilla management is. So then what do you do when you've got this plant that is, a, is very aggressive, but to make things even more complicated, it's that it's also unpredictable. It, sometimes it just takes off and explodes. Sometimes it just sits there. Sometimes it grows and then contracts. So how do you make decisions against a plant that you don't know where it's going to be in six months, much less 18 months? Because our budgets are on a yearly cycle and you've got a plan, you've got to prioritize. So how do you plan and prioritize when you have very little knowledge of where that plant is actually going to be by the time you get around to treating it? Yeah, it's it's challenging, and and so we try and inform it, inform it with data, and so we have our statewide habitat mapping program, and that's really critical data that helps inform the plant management activities that take place. You mentioned it earlier that long term data about how many years? So our long term monitoring program started in two thousand six, okay. and uh, and that was the fish component. So we we sample fish communities in the fall. And we target sport fish populations in the spring. Most lake that sport fish is largemouth bass. Um, we started our habitat mapping program in 2015. So we're seven years into the, the habitat mapping program. And so all that data is super important to inform management decisions. And it's all, all that long-term data we've been collecting was used to establish critical metrics that are now in our lake management plans, including stakeholder input. So we recognize that, I think you mentioned it earlier, that you know, not all lakes are the same across Florida. They have, they have their own unique characteristics. They have their unique user groups on their lakes. So we have to tailor our management to the individual lake. We can't treat all lakes the same. And that's where all that long-term monitoring data helps inform lake management along with the stakeholder desires on that individual system. And then within FWC, we have what's called working groups. And so on big systems that require mo most years annual management, like the Kissimmee Chain of Lakes and the Harris Chain of Lakes or the Orange Creek Basin, we have coordinated working groups with representation from every division. So we have fisheries managers, we have waterfowlers, we have our habitat restoration and enhancement biologists, our invasive plant management biologists, and they all get together and review the data, go out on the lake, talk about management approaches, and come up with a plan for that year. And, and where we have lake management plans available, come up with management plans aimed at achieving the goals in that management plan. So at the end of the day, there's not one bureaucrat in FWC 
making all the decisions on what happens here, there, or anywhere. It is a coordinated effort against a lot of different disciplines. That's right. So with like the long-term data sets in mind and the experiences that FWC brings into these management plans and meetings and how important stakeholders are to these ideas, where do we see the data and stakeholders coming together? Where can people find information about what is happening on their lake or what is going on with the invasive plant management? Yeah, so the aptly named What's Happening on My Lake website uh, is a great clearinghouse storage area for all the data that we have available on those lakes from the fisheries to the habitat. I'd say the What's Happening on My Lake is like our one-stop shop that Mm -hmm. no, no matter what lake you're on, that's a place that you can go see. You can see our fisheries data that we have available. You can see our habitat maps that are available. You can see the schedule of operations for invasive plant management. That's our that's our clearinghouse. It's our one-stop shop. All the information that we have on that lake is viewable to the public. And, and we developed that so that we're being super transparent with the public about all the data that we collect and all the management activities that that we're doing. So it 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 depends on the level of engagement that you that you want to have as a stakeholder. If you're seeking information, what's happening on my lake is the place to go. If you want to provide input, if you want to be a, a vested partner in the management of your lake, there's multiple avenues that that you can become more engaged. You know, the Invasive Plant Management Group has a regional biologist in every region of the state, and you can reach out to them and talk to them about invasive plant management on your lake. Division of Freshwater Fisheries Management has resource biologists on some of our most prominent systems like the Harris Chain of Lakes, Lake Okeechobee, the Orange Creek Basin. So there's you know, there's a, a representative, a regional representative that represents the Invasive Plant Management Group and the Fisheries Group. And so you can reach out to them and, and talk to them as well. And a little shout out to FWRI on social media. They share some really cool projects pretty regularly. So if you're interested in the kind of work and research that FWC does, they're pretty open and um, there's interesting stuff that you guys do. So. You've given us some official individuals, you know, the biologists to reach out to. There's the FWC, what's happening on my lake place to go, you know, find this clearinghouse of information. But a lot of folks use social media as their one-stop shop for everything they need to know. Do you feel that social media is helping advance us in this whole hydrilla conundrum? Or are we going backwards if we're relying on some of these message boards as our primary source of information? That's a loaded question. Well, it is a loaded question, (laughs) but as an angler, I know you probably follow Mm -hmm. eight or 10 different boards and you see more different. Yeah. (laughs) You see different personalities. And so are they overall helpful? Are there some that are better than others? And, And how do we know when we're on a good one that is really helping educate and, and, and helping dispel myths? Or are some of them just kind of trying to keep people ginned up against mm-hmm. the agencies that is actually trying to help them? Yeah, it's it's everything. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, mm-hmm. on, on social media. You know, if, if you're if you're truly seeking information to educate yourself and learn more about plant management, fisheries management, what's happening in Florida lakes, that information is out there and available. You know, the, the Center for Aquatic Invasive Plants has a, a Facebook page. The Fish and Wildlife Research Institute has a Facebook page where we share information on some of the, the research that we do. But social media is also a place 
that people can go find like-minded people mm-hmm. that can band together for good or bad, you know, and, and a lot of misinformation gets spread on Facebook. And so as a consumer of information on social media, it can be very difficult to distinguish what's real, what's not real information. And unfortunately, a lot of misinformation gets perpetuated through Facebook. So, you know, I would recommend going to those recognized sources like University of Florida, you know, FWC. FWC has multiple social media outlets. We have a a main Facebook page and FWRI Facebook page. There's probably other good resources out there, but those, those are great avenues for information. Also websites, you know, the the Center uh, for Aquatic Invasive Plants has a very informative website. FWC has droves of information available on aquatic plant management, fisheries management, some of our fisheries research available on our websites as well. Yeah, so it just seems like, you know, be careful what uh, what you read because on one hand, you look at some of the tournaments, the big fishing tournaments, the Costa tournaments and, you know, the the big guys Man, the catch rates are pretty impressive. They're catching a lot of big fish on these lakes that you and I will also go on and maybe not do as well. So when I see those tournaments just bring in these huge hauls, but then I see these Facebook groups talking about how the lakes are dead and there's nothing but mudfish and on and on and on. It's like, well, these things don't really jive, right? Because there's real data coming mm-hmm. out of these tournaments that show the fish are there and they are catchable versus people that say you can't catch a fish in Florida. So if 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 I see a lot of negativity, it's like, well, that's probably not the page for me. Let's go somewhere else. And like to your point, if, if you really want to learn, there are really good places outside of social media to learn particularly if you have specific questions, reach out to that regional biologist. This is what they do. This is their life's work. They Mm -hmm. love it. They're passionate about it. They know that lake better than anyone else. And they can really help you put the pieces together for why am I seeing what I saw on this day versus an experience I had three years, five years, 10 years ago on that same system. Mm -hmm. Theme here. I'm an angler. I'm a fisheries biologist. I'm, I'm, very much invested personally and professionally in the health of these systems. You know, one of the, one of the things that really bothers me the most is when we see stakeholders or even other anglers in a community that I'm in that think FWC is intentionally mismanaging lakes or using practices to reduce habitat and make fishing poor because nothing could be more further from the truth. And and I'm not the only one, you know, Jay, Jay says I'm unique. I'm not that unique. Uh, a lot of our fisheries biologists that we, that, that we have in our agency are also dedicated bass anglers. Many of us got into this field because we love bass fishing so much. Uh, so we're very much invested in what we're doing. And we're not always 100% successful at meeting our management goals, but 100% of the time, we're trying real hard. It's always with the best intentions, right? That's right. Well, Jason, thank you for coming and joining us today and having this conversation. The theme that has just come up over and over again, that every time we mention hydrilla, we say it's complicated. It's complicated. And I think we've had a discussion today about some of these complexities and where we are. So hopefully this will help people put this plant in context, understand what it really is. So is it a hero? Is it a villain? 
Well, it's neither. It is a plant that is here, and now we have to manage it, and it's part of our landscape. Thank you, everyone, for joining us in this conversation. We've really enjoyed talking through some intense topics. We're going to be back in a couple of weeks with another plant profile. So if you're not subscribed to the podcast, please do so you're notified every time we drop a new one.